This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Escape, a triple R film criticism show and podcast. My name is Lisa Kovacevic and joining me as always is Cerise Howard and Emma Westwood. Hello, hello. 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 And tonight's special guest is Stuart Richards. Hello. Hi, Stuart. Hi. Stuart is the author of the queer, sorry, the author, oh, yes, you are the author of the Queer Film Festival Popcorn and Politics. Uh, Stuart has worked with Frameline San Francisco International LGBTQ Film Festival and is currently the Secretary for Senses of Cinema. Stuart sits on the selection panel for the Melbourne Queer Film Festival and lectures in screen studies at Melbourne Uni and and RMIT. Stuart, welcome to Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. 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 Hi, Mum. I should give her a shout out. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, On tonight's show, we will be discussing acclaimed writer Aaron Sorkin's directorial debut with Molly's Game, the true story of Molly Bloom, an Olympic class skier who came to run the world's most exclusive high stakes poker game for the rich and famous and Happy End, the new film from Michael Haneke about an affluent French family living in a bourgeois bubble in northern France oblivious to the human misery unfolding in migrant camps around the port town of Calais, a few miles from their home. And Cerise, we're going to sneak in another, um, is it Agnes Barter? Mm-hmm. Little little review. Mm-hmm. Uh, but first, Phantom Thread, a film about a haunted sewing machine. Anyone? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it's Paul Thomas Anderson's latest offering featuring Daniel Day-Lewis in what the actor has claimed is his final performance, although let's be yeah, honest, we've right. all heard that before. Yeah. Um, Day-Lewis plays fashion designer Reynolds Woodcock, an artist with an obsessive streak. Reynolds' sister Cyril, played by Leslie Manville, tends to his peculiar needs running the family business, facilitating his creative rituals and politely dismissing the disposable muses who have outstayed their welcome. When Reynolds meets Elma, played by Vicky Creeps, is it? Creeps? I'm not sure how to pronounce her name. What about, do you know how, to, you, you know these things, uh, Cerise? Sometimes I Except do. Except in this case. Uh, Creeps? <laughs> we, we don't Cripes. know. K-R-I-E-P-S. That, correct. Just that, so people know. Yes. We just, yeah. So Elma is this lowly serving maid and Cyril thinks she's just the next in a long line of passing fancies to be measured, catalogued, dressed and tossed aside, but Elma is not like Reynolds' other muses. Um, Reynolds' affections for her inevitably turn to cold indifference and his sister's warm eyes turn to ice, but Elma refuses to give up her place in the house of good cock and be sent away like the other long line of ingenues before her. This is a very extended, uh, you know, intro. <laughs> I will try and be more concise with my next one. What did you guys think of Phantom Thread? Did you say Woodcock? Yeah. Isn't it Woodcock? Yeah, Woodcock. I thought yeah. you said Goodcock. That's what I heard. Did you? Like, oh, you I saw you have a funny little look at each other. How very Freudian. Well, it is. <laughs> the whole film I found very Freudian. Yes. Um, so that was a good segue. Thanks, yeah. Cerise. Yeah. I was helping out there with yeah. my Freudian Always slip. Always a help of me. <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, it's a lot of the, the, the gothic romance about this film, um, uh, especially in uh, what turns out to be a very elegant sleight of hand ultimately, which we can't spoil for anybody. But uh, it, it's, I hadn't been aware ahead of time how much of a, a gothic romance this would prove to be true to form to. And just how British also. Um, I mean, Paul Thomas Anderson seems like the quintessential present day American director. And yet this film is so British and so uncontrivedly, it doesn't feel put on, it doesn't feel like an American in Britain trying to get the hang of those wacky Brits in their wacky uptight ways. It's just very, felt very organic. And I, I really, 
really enjoyed this. I, I was lulled into it. I, I had been a little apprehensive because the trailer hadn't sold it to me. But then I think if the trailer had sold it to me, it might have spoiled it for me as well because this film really does hinge upon a really, really nice little deception. But um, you know, look, if this is Day Lewis's last work, it's at least it's a good piece of work. He's very, very captivating, very charismatic as Reynolds uh, Woodcock. Um, perhaps a hint of a, a, a nod to Hitchcock there in that name, we might think, because there's a lot of a lot that, that's a little reminiscent of Rebecca in Very this much. film in particular. Yes, I think actually Paul Thomas Anderson called it his Rebecca. So I that's interesting that you picked up on that. Um, uh, Cyril, his sister, she's the Mrs. Danvers, isn't she? Yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes. and and his dead mother, you could argue, is the Rebecca character that sort of mm. haunts the house, looms over the house. He has his maybe sort she's of, the phantom. Yes, that's true. Yeah. That, that's true. That's yeah. always present. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I felt that too. I also felt that, that he mentions, um, or, you know, you find he, he keeps a lock of his mother's hair in his breast pocket or something from memory or he sews it into his clothes and, and I thought, oh, that was a very, you know, obvious connection between a phantom thread that, you know, has this very, it's a very eatable sort of... Oh, yes, you know, they're very complex. close family. Yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did. I like the way this film was very, um, very sensual without having any sexual activity whatsoever in it. In fact, I think there was only one kiss, and it was. It felt quite shocking because I just realised there hadn't been any physical interaction. So it was all about that. Um, you know the pheromones, the vibe, which is something that's really hard to convey in a number of ways, especially on film. Um, But Day-Lewis, I think, has managed... Look, I thought he was excellent in this and it reminded me of that similar sensuality to something like um, Age of Innocence, the Scorsese, which he was was in as well. Um, Very different for Paul Thomas Anderson, though, and I really was quite pleased to see that he's sort of come around to create a different type of film. I've loved the other films that he's created, but I was feeling that something like The Master, I wasn't a great fan of Inherent Vice, but I don't know whether I really watched it in good circumstances, to be totally honest. But The Master was just feeling, he he was feeling like he was getting a little too uh, pretentious. And and this film, I think, was just showing that he's got more in him that he's just not a director that's going down one path and going to get stuck in a certain mould. I'm a big fan of There Will Be Blood. And I was always thinking of that film as I was watching this. Uh, I didn't read anything about the film going in, so that was the only thing that that was kind of playing at the back of my mind when watching this. So I was always comparing, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson's direction, um, Daniel Day-Lewis's performances and Johnny Greenwood's score. Um, so I was always comparing them to There Will Be Blood. Beautiful score, wasn't it? Yeah, beautiful score. Mm. And in thinking of Johnny Greenwood's work for There Will Be Blood, it was so different from what we were seeing. Um, we, we had images of a Western, but we you know, heard something that was very much from a, a horror film. And But in this film, it matches what we're seeing, I think. It's just so grand and, and sumptuous. Um, and I loved all of the sound um, throughout the house as well, the sound of the fabric, um, the sound of Alma in kind of dictating her relationship with Reynolds, mm. where when she's annoying, she's really loud, the way she butters her toast <laughs> in the morning. And crunches and on crunches it. crunches and pouring her tea. Yeah. Um, 
But when she's on his good side, she's very quiet. Um, she's like a mouse throughout the house. Yeah. You talked about it, um, Cerise, uh, the little sort of reveal that comes towards the end and it's interesting because that reveal, it is a reveal, but when you really look across the whole film, you go, of course, mm-hmm. of course it's there. Yeah, it's, it is elegant. It's, it, it, yeah. it, it makes sense. It's not a, oh, come on, sort of a, a revelation. It's a, oh, yeah, I see what he did there. How interesting. So the consensus is you all liked the film as a whole, You did it, did you? (laughs) It's always you, Lisa. I know. Film after film, show after show. (laughs) You seem like such a nice girl. Look, she's smiling now. She's laughing. But on the inside. (laughs) (laughs) No, I didn't, like, I didn't see it as, Em, you were sort of saying, um, you know, it was sensual and sort, of, and it was. It was in terms of um, certainly, it was visually spectacular as Paul Thomas Anderson is, and and actually, I'm the daughter of a seamstress of a dressmaker, and mm-hmm. and I think he did a wonderful job of capturing that. I could smell the overlocker that my mother used as a child watching that film, and and there was some remarkable scenes of like a. Um, New Year's party, um, and this is set in the 50s, although it's really hard to tell when it's set because the film is so insular. You're always in this house. You're barely outside except for some mushroom foraging that happens at some point in the film. Um, but the, there's this incredible uh, New Year's party and it's all like handmade papier-mâché things yeah. and it just really... It's all for our visual pleasure and it, the film did remind me... It did make me want to go back and read Laura Mulvey's um, visual pleasure and narrative cinema. Is that the title? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, and so much of it for me felt like I haven't gone back and read it. So there's probably some first year cinema students rolling their eyes at me. So I'll get, <laughs> I'll get my, I'll get it wrong. <laughs> and I know that there's been some, you know, revision on that that article. But um, it, it was so much about the male gaze for me. This film, um, the fact that he's called Woodcock is hilarious. Um, and there was a lot of laughter the in the cinema. House actually. of Woodcock. The House yes. of Woodcock. <laughs> and it is all about him. You know, it's all about his genius, his creativity. And it reminded me a lot, actually, of Darren. O- Aronofsky's mother from last year, um, although that was much more um, heightened, I suppose, but it's about these sort of male artists that sort of suck the lifeblood out of their female muses. Um, and and so it was very much about power, this film, and, and also, you, you, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson as that having the male gaze with his camera. And um, I just felt that that Alma, I just, she was only defined in relation to him. She had no creative agency of her own. And I, I found that left me a little bit um, wanting. The only time she sort of got creative was when it was she was foraging for mushrooms or, or cooking, which is so domestic in nature. I just sort of... Yeah, see, I think that's kind of the point of it, though. I think that Alma was really... Um, a, a blank canvas for him to paint on. And that was uh, just because she was also young and wide-eyed. So it was sort of showing her growth as a person with him yes. and how his influence made her grow into a certain type of person. And also she she has that, she had that strength in her, you know. It, it, it was brought out through him and frustrations with him. But she's definitely... I didn't feel she was portrayed... She was, sh- was shown to be a weak character or no, anything no, like that. No, no, no. She but, rose yeah. to his power. But I just yeah. thought that the, her only interesting thing about her was that she sort of challenged him but it, but her, her only her only desire to do so was her obsession for him it was to be with him to be united with him and I found that 
sort of dated or something. I don't know. It just didn't, it's particularly after, we've had such a political year, yeah. you know, and this Me Too stuff and I'm just but sort do you of know, like, yeah. I can't, I can't say because it would be a spoiler mm-hmm. to say, you, you know what I'm talking about? I Ceres? believe I do. Yeah, and that's why I, you mean yeah. the end? I can't you mean say the, the yeah. Yes, I sure. think that justifies it because it's the the relationship dynamics. It's a certain type yeah. Of there's a complicit. They become complicit in something. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll say that. People are thinking, what are they saying? Yes. <laughs> I really love that Alma's a blank canvas in the film. Uh, that we don't really know anything of her backstory. We don't meet any of her family. Um, we know it's the mid fifties, and she has. I want to say a vaguely. German accent, so mm-hmm. we know she's possibly a refugee from World War Two. So for me, when I was watching this film, and particularly her character, I think there's a lot there about maybe sort of this post-World War Two trauma for her character, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of how I read into her. Mm. Um, and I also, this is way off topic, but I, I also read kind of a queer subtext for the film as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Reynolds Woodcock says he's a confirmed bachelor. Yes, um, that's that's interesting mm. when he said that because when confirmed bachelor means yeah. something else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and Cyril's okay. sexuality is quite yes. intriguing, and her name is is cross gendered mm. too. Mm. And uh, mm. I mean, she's just possibly the most interesting thing in the entire yes. film. Cyril yeah. being the sister. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. She was wonderful. She was beautifully played as well. What was the what's the actress's name? She's up Leslie for an Oscar. Leslie. Yeah. She's yeah. up for an Oscar too for this one. Because there's that great scene after their first date. Um, Reynolds is measuring her and she comes in and there's a bit where she's taking the measurements and just looking at a half-naked Alma um, and some might read her as kind of sizing her up as potential competition in the house, but I read it as a totally queer scene. Yeah, mm. yeah, I got, I got that. Yeah, but she's so buttoned up, mm. uh, so uh, you, you sense that she would never act upon whatever it is that makes her tick. Mm. But that's yeah, fifties appropriate. You mm. could say it's fifties uh, authentic. Perhaps is more the a, a term. Yeah, I, well, I really enjoyed the film, and I enjoyed Anderson's austerity compared to the flamboyance with which he made his earlier films. He he really nailed Britishness even in the cinematography. It was very restrained, mm, yeah. wasn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I did enjoy. There was lots of you know, it touched on a lot of fairy tales as well. I, I felt you know, obviously Beauty and the Beast. Or there's he's very much a bluebeard sort of character. Mm, yes. And I enjoyed all that, and even the hunt, the hunting through the woods, and and the way that the camera would move um, within the interior of that house up the stairwell, it felt like a tower and she was trapped in it and all that, all those sort of... Rapunzel. The, yeah, Rapunzel. there was lots of that <laughs> symbolism, which I which I did enjoy. But, yeah, on the whole, I, I really didn't like her character. But, look, I'm, I'm alone on an island because everyone, <laughs> every review I've read just loves this. They're just singing its praises. And I, I did really like Johnny Greenwood's score, which I thought was worth yeah, a mention. Amazing. Really Incredible. amazing. Yeah, it really just great. works so beautifully in with the imagery as well. It was just perfect symmetry right from the start. It mm. was quite notable. Yeah. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. Welcome back. You're on Plato's Cave, Triple R's film criticism show with me, Lisa, regular panellist, Cerise and Emma, and our special guest, Richard. No, 
Yes, Stuart. No, Stuart. <laughs> I just read your surname. Sorry, Stuart. Um, <laughs> oh, that last track we heard was The Ravenettes With My Eyes Closed, which features on the soundtrack to Molly's Game, which is the film we're about to speak about. Uh, Molly's Game is based on the true story of Molly Bloom, an Olympic-class skier who, after a skiing accident, ended her career, ran the world's most exclusive high-stakes poker game, and her, her players included Hollywood royalty, sports stars, business titans, and finally, unbeknownst to her, the, mush- the Russian mob, rather. Uh, Molly ran the game for 10 years before being arrested in the middle of the night by 17 FBI agents wielding automatic weapons. Um, written by the West Wing creator Aaron Sorkin, Molly's Game is also the belated directorial debut for the 56-year-old who won an Oscar for his screenplay for The Social Network. Um, what did we all think of Sorkin's turn as a director? Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> he, did a, he did a pretty good job. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's he better than pre- perfunctory. Yeah, but, he did uh, a pretty good job. I mean... Um, when it started, it's interesting that it started with um, the information about her being a um, a skier, an, uh, an Olympic skier, because um, he, he sort of has these opening scenes. It just straight away, I just went to um, the social network where it's almost like a competitive sport to get all these lines out the, that I don't know how she could speak so fast. And it was the same with Jesse Eisenberg in the social network, this just delivery. At I suspect they put them on a timer. Go! It's really quite exhausting. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I guess it's a dynamic start. I was kind of like, you know, I, enjo- I enjoyed it, don't get me wrong, but I thought, oh, well, are we going down the same track here? Luckily... I guess he didn't, even though it's still, you know, um, a biopic. So there's element of that that goes along with it. Um, I'm not sure how much of this is actually of the story was true or not, but I did find it very, very interesting what what unravelled. And the poker games, I mean, poker's a game that I sort of learn every 10 years and then forget it, you know. So I, I, I watched it... You know, I felt like lots of stuff was happening that I didn't see, but it was still really exciting anyway. It was like watching, you know, when you watch Casino Royale, that poker game, whatever game, they were playing blackjack, I don't know, whatever they were playing in Casino Royale was, you know, that tension of the card games and that came across really, really well. Um, And I really felt that I kind of didn't think too much about the direction, which I guess is a really you know, that's a, pl- a feather in his cap because if it was so obvious, then he probably wasn't doing his job very well. If, if he was only just a bit wittier somehow, he'd be the perfect writer of screwball comedy. He's got the pace. <laughs> he just doesn't have the, the, the laughs. The laughs. Yeah. <laughs> I still found this quite engrossing. I didn't know anything about this woman as played by Jessica Chastain, who is um, wonderful and I've been a fan of hers for some time. She totally holds the film, holds the, the frame. She, um, but when, uh, <laughs> she Emma holds the frame, doesn't she? Gesturing in a, in, a, <laughs> in a very memory-centric fashion. <laughs> they're very impressive in this film and they're in all stages of uplift and cleavage. They are. They get, they get their own credit. Duly noted. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, now, where was I? <laughs> Distracted you with yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Her eyes are up here. I do like Jessica Chastain. I think this is definitely her best role, though. Yeah, it's incredible. Definitely her best role. I mm. thought, finally, I get to see. I, I, I do understand what the, all the fuss is about and why mm. she's getting so many roles. 
Yeah, she's got something of a 50s bombshell quality to her presence on screen in this. She's really just transfixing and beautiful and compelling. And her character, I mean, sure, she's drawn from real life. I've no idea what the real Molly Bloom looked like, whether the the, the biography, I understand, yes, she was a, a, an Olympic skiing candidate, but, but who, who really was she? I mean, I, I don't... Mm. But I understand that the book that this draws from um, actually named some of the people in mm. these poker games and... Yeah. The film yeah, withholds this and why? Does. That's frustrating. I thought so too the, throughout the whole film because um, Sorkin's made this decision to keep her at the centre of this film as opposed to the players of the poker game who are very famous people. And I found myself during the film, this is terrible, but during Trying the film, to work out. I Googled it. And I, <gasps> you Googled? Yeah, I did because I wanted to know who Mr X was. who's played that phone out yeah, of your I know. hand. <laughs> ter- I'm terrible. I'm not even a millennial. I'm terrible. But, um, yeah, Michael Cera plays the part of Mr X brilliantly, I thought. Player he's, he's X. Re- player yes. X. He's revolting. And you can very quickly, should I say who it is? You can say, I mean, it's pretty They easy. say it's Toby It's Maguire. Toby Maguire. Yeah. yeah, I thought it might have been Shia LaBeouf. No, yeah, no, no, it's Mr. Uh, Maguire. Yeah, yeah. He turns out he's a real prick. Anyway, um, I we thought- might have a defamation case <laughs> on our hands. You better take that back. <laughs> take it back. Apparently. 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 Allegedly. Allegedly. (laughs) Um, Yes, but I thought Michael Sarah was outstanding in this. I thought he was so creepy and vile um, as Mr X, a.k.a. Mr Maguire, um, (laughs) (laughs) who draws in other celebrities to play this poker game uh, with Molly. The the problem I had with this film, because I always seem to have problems with (laughs) it, moment um, was that so Sorkin's decided okay no I'm not going to make this film about the celebrity culture that surrounds it I'm going to make it about um, this woman Molly Bloom and how she has to overcome these the power of these males um, and she has to do it with her father she has to do it at a club she has to do it for this um, real estate type sort of real estate Hollywood real estate broker I suppose mm-hmm. and then for his poker game which she then takes over and that's all good and well but then when it comes to sort of the end you have this um, major scene where Molly's attorney Charlie Jaff- Jaffe um, is, who's played by Idris Elba has this really long monologue in singing all of... Um, he gets the monologue. He gets the monologue. He Why? gets the Sorkin he, monologue. Yeah, he gets this incredible Sorkin monologue which should have belonged to her um, but I understood, she just sort of sits there mute and I understood the purpose of it was that you saw his characters shift from, you know, thinking that she she was vacuous celebrity um, to the, the, to someone virtuous and he needs to sing those praises. And then he tells her to go for a walk or have some dinner or something yeah. and she stumbles upon an ice skating rink um, to, and then she decides to blow off some steam and then she just remarkably bumps into her father there who she's been estranged I from for I have a feeling years. that might have been a bit of creative licence. I don't think on. all of those events <laughs> happened at the same time, but did yeah, they? No, but then you have so this... <laughs> But then you have this other male character, he sits her down and he's a psychologist as well and he sits her down and says, I'm going to give, what did he say? He says, I'm going to give you a free like psychology lesson. I'm going to give you like 15 years of therapy in 15 minutes. That's what he says. It's bloody terrible. (laughs) And we've been with this character the whole film and then all of a sudden it's going to take her father. So this film's about male toxicity and then it's her father that has to explain to her what's wrong with her life and how she needs to fix it. I mean, Mm. honestly. She felt like a very lonely character. It was, she was 
a very isolated character yeah. the whole time, the whole way through it. I think it was, and I think that was on purpose, though, to make her it, it as though she had absolutely no support. Like she had a little bit of support by some of the women that were involved, but really they didn't play that up in the film at all. So mm. it was that, you know, that feeling of um, abundance of wealth, yeah. seemingly successful but having nothing, really. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I did feel that this kind of power she builds throughout the film gets portrayed towards the end because of those reasons. I mean, there is that moment where she stands up and defends herself in court, you know, talking about her name, not to give it away. Um, and I really liked that moment. But I do feel that the, I guess, that sort of power she you know, creates is completely washed away by that very end. Um, I do want to say that I love that Michael Cera is acting again. And mm, back in I know. He's so great. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that he's proving, because he could have been a one-note actor mm. and he's actually proving to be very versatile. Yeah. He is, Which yeah. is great. Yeah. I actually would have liked to see a lot more of that relationship in mm. this film. I found that really fascinating, the, the dynamic between um, this, you know, A-list Hollywood actor and, and this um, woman running this poker yeah. game and how that plays out. I thought there was some really fantastic scenes between them um, that, yeah, wasn't explored enough perhaps. I don't know. Yeah. 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 One thing I find really interesting about her narration, um, there's that scene between her and Idris Elba at the start where previously we've just had her introduction to the scummy real estate agent mm -hmm. and there's that discussion around the bagels and mm -hmm. he's like, these are homeless people bagels. And then later Idris Elba says, you know, he actually said the N-word bagels, didn't he? Yes. Um, and that kind of made me realise, all right, so she's not the most reliable of narrators. This story she's telling is obviously a very idealised story mm. from her perspective. And that made me really question the rest of the film as it was going on oh, in terms okay. of, yeah. the, you know, the truth, the, what, what is the truth, truth of yeah. this story. Um, so I just, yeah, I found that quite interesting. That's playing out a bit at the moment. That was like in I, Tonya mm. as well. We discussed that. So that's yeah. interesting that that's come up as mm. a, maybe it's a new thing with biopics. Well, especially <laughs> in, in this case, this one redacts the names of a lot of the people whose identities would be so interested in knowing. One of them was Toby Maguire, I suppose. <laughs> I could name a few more, but I feel like I'm going to get in trouble. Um, <laughs> uh, Molly's Game is on wide national release at the moment. Um, Cerise, you saw the Agnes Varda film? Film you, Faces think, Places, yeah. I did. Yeah. I've been on a bit of a Varda bender, uh, <laughs> which is a thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, like this is still playing. Uh, it's running at Acme for until mid-March. They've had a bit of a, a little mini Varda retrospective. They actually had a very large Varda retrospective a few years ago, which was connected with the Cinematheque retrospective also, which between them was very thorough. It's been lovely revisiting some of her films, especially her most recent ones leading up to this, The Beaches of Agnes, uh, and just before that, The Gleaners and I, where she's in the sort of documentary essay film mode, um, and ageing from one to the next to the next, each of them about seven to eight years apart, and each of them a meditation upon her own mortality as she goes about also the business of just um, following her passions in life, which are meeting people and uh, paying tribute to them, and especially ordinary folk, folk who, whose lots in life are often underappreciated or not at all celebrated and often, in fact, marginalised, whether it's gleaners in the gleaners and I people who just sort of salvage and scavenge uh, to, to make ends meet, um, uh, through to this latest film where she, with her co 
director or collaborator, JR, a street artist, go about the place um, postering tributes to the locals of little villages and ruins and all manner of places, whilst weaving in some of her own biography and, and having quite a lot of uh, contemplation of what it is to be human and to have in particular a face what it is to have a face and what it is to obscure one's face or to obscure other features of oneself, especially as one ages in her case. Well, JR is this sprightly 30-something-year-old, I think. And the two of them have such a great rapport, such, there's such great banter between them, such lovely mutual respect. And they're, they're, they're a little match made in heaven as far as the collaboration goes. Stu, you saw this too, didn't you? Yes, I yeah. did. I think a, a film or a documentary that deals with one's own mortality should be quite a sad affair, but it's just so joyful. Mm. Um, the entire film, I had the stupidest grin on my face. Uh, it's just, I mean, the scene when they're going through the Louvre, I think is just one of the highlights of my film year last year. Yeah, I, I don't really have anything to add other than it's just such a beautiful documentary about sort of what it means to love and what it means to be content with one's own life. Well, what I also love is that anyone could come at this without knowing anything of her storied career. I mean, she's been making films for a very long time and her biography does feature throughout this film, but it's not integral to your enjoyment of it, I don't feel. But if you do know her films and know her relationship with certain other figures of the, the Nouvelle Vague, like especially Jean-Luc Godard, who features in a, a quite heartbreaking way in this film. Yeah, yeah he's an arsehole. Um, uh, spoilers. <laughs> you all knew that. Anyway. <laughs> Jerk. Yeah, uh, jerk. Is, is Toby, Toby Maguire? Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, but it's, um, yeah, the, the, the more that you, oh, look, I think anyone who sees this will want to see more of her work, see more of her on screen, but also her behind the screen, and then also investigate the films her late husband made to Jacques Demy, and she made a beautiful film about him once, also Jacques de Nantes, which is just a stunning film about people like her who love making films. And I do want to just, uh, one thing I really love about Agnes, recently there was the Oscars lunch where all of the Oscar nominees attend this lunch and they take a really daggy high school style photo. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Agnes wanted none of that, so she sent a cardboard cutout of hers <laughs> at the very back. Yeah. I think it's next to Greta Gerwig. <laughs> There's just this cardboard cutout. Yeah, I, I just hope Greta Gerwig made sure she had her tongue in Agnes's ear or something like that. That would have been great. Well, where's that going? <laughs> Well, you know, have fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, if you're interested in seeing Faces Places, it's playing at Acme. Uh, well, I can see it's playing this week. So check out the Acme website for tickets and times. And is the Cinematheque doing a Agnes Varda season or something? Oh, no, not this no, year. No, no. no. And, um, but uh, Acme has just run uh, a few other films it's in a, a season. But, yeah, now it's all about Faces Places there, I think. Unless people were to take to the phones and lobby the people at the Acme box office and say, you must play more, Agnes. <laughs> of course you must. <laughs> um, maybe she'll come here then. We'll be very excited. I'd be excited. <laughs> Three. Triple. Our next film is set in Calais, France and stars Isabelle Huppert, Jean-Louis Trintignet. I don't know. Trintignon. Uh, Trin say that? Maybe. Maybe. Let's go with that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Matthew Kasovitz, who's probably best known for his role as um, Nino in the film Amelie. I love him in that. Um, this is uh, Michael Haneke's latest offering, Happy End, whose title is surely ironic. Um, 
spoiler alert, there is no happy ending in this one. What um, a shock. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about it. I found it was tiny bit happy ending. Maybe tiny bit. Tiny bit. Tiny bit happy end. In a sort of perverse way. <laughs> um, in Happy End, Georges Laurent is uh, gradually succumbing to dementia and the octogenarian patriarch of an affluent upper bourgeois family is uncomfortably sharing his palatial manor in Calais, the heart of the infamous migrant jungle, with his twice married son Thomas and workaholic daughter Anne, who has taken over the family construction business. Anne has to handle the impact of a disastrous workplace accident caused by her disappointing son Pierre's negligence, while at the same time the urgent hospitalisation of her brother Thomas's ex-wife from mysterious poisoning leads his morose 13-year-old daughter Eve to live with her father and his new wife Anais. Um, in this family, everyone has a skeleton in the closet and as the fates of the Laurents enmeshed with insins- insistent and ignoble desires, a peculiar and disturbing alliance forms. Um, it's written and directed by Hannah Kay um, and it was selected to compete for the Palme d'Or in the main competi- competition section at the 2017 Cannes Film Festival. Look, I enjoy watching miserable French families <laughs> in existential despair as much as the next person. Um, but I think just being depressing in French doesn't really make for a great film. So I don't know. Did you guys enjoy it? Who wants to leap in first? Well, on paper, that sounds really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I just found it such a dreadful bore. It was um, There were some really lovely moments in that film. Uh, so we have this 13-year-old girl, Eve, I mm-hmm. think her name is, mm-hmm. who we know is developing these really awful, evil tend- tendencies. And so there's the scene when she's uh, sort of with the baby and it's really drawn out. You're like, oh, my God, what is she going to do with this baby? Mm. Um, and then there's a later conversation between uh, George and Eve, who's, you know, the, the grandfather and, mm-hmm. uh, and Eve. And once again, I thought that was quite powerful, but... I, I remember I saw this at MIF last year and I just remember being really restless and just, like, looking at my phone to, you know, obviously light off, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you said that. Yeah. <laughs> just as, you know, how long is this going for? I just found it to be just dragging. Um, I didn't care enough for the characters. Yeah. I mean, I, I, know, I know that's what Hanukkah was trying to do, was wanting us to distance um, us from these characters um, as much as both George and Eve are distanced from everyone else around them. And I knew that what's what he was doing. And I knew that, obviously, in the backdrop is the, the refugee crisis um, and how everyone is ignoring that refugee crisis, even the audience. Mm. Even the filmmaker. Even the filmmaker. And there's that <laughs> one, there is a reveal at the end when you realise what he's trying to do mm-hmm. with that. But by then I just didn't care. Yeah, um, I was the same. Yeah, I didn't care by then. I I, I think that um, Haneke can be a really dynamic filmmaker, even if it's a film that you most people wouldn't want to see again, something like Funny Games, for example, with, you know, a really high-impact film, very difficult to watch mm. but very high-impact. Um, and this film was just, like, a little flat. Um, it did, I mean, I, he was purposely trying to test our patience with those those shots that were sort of like real-time shots of someone walking up to get an ice cream, well, on the walking phone. back. <laughs> On the, the, phone, yeah. the, the, the text message with the text mm. message going up. I just, yeah, and that killed me. That just—I <laughs> was so that was so boring. Yeah, yeah, and it, and I think that was well. Obviously, it was stylistically on purpose, and it was meant to be pushing some boundary there. But um, I think the most interesting thing of the film was that. Um, 
Isabel Huppert and Toby Jones were really quite um, um, good as a couple. <laughs> and I never thought that, that that I would see them as making a great couple. But, yeah, it really worked. They both sold it. It was bound to happen eventually. They're both in everything. everything. <laughs> <laughs> so we knew this day would come. We just didn't really contemplate it at length. <laughs> It's still not exactly as if they had chemistry. I didn't sense any real fireworks between them. Um, <laughs> was there fireworks between anyone? No, this, this film is so really. cold. And we're used to coldness from Hanukkah. He's uh, a very cruel filmmaker. He loves rubbing audiences' faces in, in it. And um, But sometimes that's really interesting and engaging, strangely. And, um, but this, yeah, this left me super cold and I found it very tiresome and I have to say I didn't bring a lot of energy to it I was I saw this just last night and was very very tired and it was probably the exact wrong film to see in that state but even allowing for that I think this was boring mm. um, the, the the final sort of gag would have been funny if Luis Bonwell had directed it and introduced it to the film at about the 20 minute mark and then expanded upon it because <laughs> there is something there about you know, Bonwell who, who was so great at poking fun at the bourgeoisie even in his film titles with such films as The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, uh, Michael Haneke has never been known for his gags in the past. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I still don't think he's quite mastered comedy. Him and Aaron Sorkin. Yeah, and Sorkin. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, they haven't missed their calling either of them. Um, <laughs> This, this was just such an odd experience. Um, that the, the opening scene, which app was it? Was it Instagram? Which, uh, which live photo I was, or video I couldn't thing? really tell. Just was it a French version of yeah, something? Of something. Probably fictitious, but, you know, they're all yeah. much of a muchness, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that was seriously testing my patience Same. immediately. And sure, that's kind of the point, but also, and? You know, it's really? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that there has to be some sort of trade-off, you know, and this is, the, I think, the thing with, with cinema. You can push the boundaries on some on one aspect of the film, but there has to be something else in which you're delivering in. And and this film, and apart from, us, you know, actually assembling an amazing cast, it didn't capitalise on it. That was probably really infuriating as well mm. to see these, mm. you know, powerhouses who really didn't do much. much. You know? I found um, interesting that the, the estranged daughter of Thomas, I think Eve was her name, um, she mm. sort of comes back into the fold. Her mother's become very mysteriously sick and it's... It's, <laughs> it's not so much of a mystery not, really. Not, not really, really, no. <laughs> well, to the listen. poor hamster. Yeah, I was pleased to see that no, uh, according to the end credits, no animal was harmed during the making of this film. But well, let, anyway. let, let's just say she's a, a soon-to-be sociopath, you know, that, yeah. that's the, 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 what's implied here. And um, I, I just thought it was a shame that, like, the villain of the film was this 13-year-old girl. But mind you, I don't think he sort of... Um, I don't think Haneke, you know, wields his contempt for his characters with much sort of precision or anything. Yeah. He sort of hates them equally, I think. <laughs> but there was no real... That could be... That sounds better than it actually was. It wasn't as malevolent as it sounds to have this sort of evil child, you know. Mm. It could be really dark and... Not, but it was flat. It, it was, was just flat, flat, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 And none of the... I, I don't think we can blame the performances on that. I don't think it's their... A problem. I think it was literally Haneke's direction in this. Yeah. And he can be such a great director. I mean, did he do, was it Hidden? Have, mm -hmm. I, have I got the right yeah. hand? Yep, See, yep, I yep. loved, I absolutely adored that film. And that's another film where, you know, he's, 
you get this dynamism out of, you know, just something that's, uh, he's, you know, long, tense bow that he's drawing. But it didn't happen here. No, I don't really know. Didn't. Yeah, he just lost it. No, I just found myself quietly telling myself that it's going to get better. It's going to be- get better, and then you just realise you've just wasted two you- two hours of your life <laughs> <laughs> with vicarious trauma. Um, <laughs> um, look, Happy End is currently on limited release. Uh, if you are interested in some vicarious trauma, um, Phantom Thread and Molly's Game are on wide release, courtesy of 20th Century Fox. Uh, you've been listening to Cerise Howard, Emma Westwood, myself, Lisa Kovacevic, along with our special guest Stuart Richards. Uh, Stuart, thanks for joining us. Will you come again? I will come again. This was fun. Thank you. Come again. Um, And Sally Christie will be back on board next week too whilst Emma takes a week off. Um, And on next week's show we'll be discussing Greta Gerwig's directorial debut, Lady Bird, who a Mm. couple of subscribers were very lucky to (laughs) win. Uh, yep, we'll be discussing that and uh, we'll be looking at Marvel Universe's latest edition with Black Panther. Am I right here? I'm scared that I'm saying no, the wrong thing. Yeah, this is right that's right. Um, what an interesting combination. I'm, I'm really annoyed that I'm missing out. Yeah, uh, and Joshua's Z Weinstein's Menashe. Um, if you'd like to... <laughs> that is a very interesting combination. It is, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you'd like to catch up on this or any other episodes, you can head to the Triple R website or download the Plato's Cave podcast. Incidentally, the podcast version of this show is edited by Faith Everard. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.